Today, we're talking about true crime YouTubers being accused of selling an 11-year-old's autopsy images, Canada's government going after Logan Paul and KSI, Logan Paul firing back with misinformation allegations, the actors have officially gone on strike, a judge ruled in Italy that groping only counts if it lasts more than 10 seconds. We're going to talk about all that and so much more in today's brand new extra-large Philip DeFranco show you daily dive into the news, so buckle up, hit that like button, and let's just jump into it. Starting with, y'all, the headline true crime YouTuber goes way too far has become as common as Florida man throws live gator and went Wendy's drive-thru window, which is to say, while it should be, it is no longer a surprising one. And today we have not just one, but two YouTubers provoking outrage, Natasha Cooper and Zavgirl. And that's because they've been covering the case of an 11-year-old boy by the name of Gannon Stout, who was murdered by his stepmother in 2020. And Zavgirl obtained the gruesome autopsy photos of Gannon's body through a freedom of information request, which she, along with Cooper, put in content and sold on her Patreon for $3. And so, of course, with this, people reacted with disgust, accusing her of exploiting this little boy's death for profit and entertainment. And you had Gannon's dad calling it evil, saying that after three years of during his son's murder trial, now he has to relive the trauma because of these YouTubers. Well, you followed it, but the only day I chose not to come to the trial was the day that they showed the autopsy photos. Now I feel like I can't even go on YouTube without the possibility of accidentally coming across these photos. But we saw Zavgirl defend herself in a now-deleted YouTube post saying she didn't sell the autopsy photos on their own, but rather as one part of a longer video. And saying, quote, I spent a lot of time and worked hard putting together a video lining up the coroner's audio and descriptions along with the appropriate part of the photo she is describing and editing it together to try to make it as informative as possible for the viewer. As well as saying the reality of the situation is that different people feel differently about this. Some people genuinely think making a video including the autopsy photos is bad and I respect their opinion and feelings. Other people, like myself, think of autopsy photos in the coroner discussing slash explaining them as interesting and informative and are able to view it all in a more scientific, detached way. Now, reportedly, Patreon has taken down both the video and her account for showing violent content. You can still see angry comments on our most recent YouTube videos. People saying things like, Zav girl, my God, my God, how could you be so disgustingly insensitive and unprofessional? I'm honestly stunned beyond words at your cruel insensitivity. As well as a person with a good moral compass wouldn't have to think for a second before refusing to stoop so low. Was it really worth the money you made from it? This isn't hate, by the way. It's disappointment mixed with disgust and confusion. What were you thinking? And others saying she should be ashamed for how she re-victimized Gannon's family and those who love him. Which is why with this story, whether you're a true crime fan or you're just looking at this shit show from the outside, I'd really love to know your thoughts on this. All right, what are your thoughts on this specific situation in general? And then how does that connect to your, your view of kind of true crime content in general? And then governments just seem to not be fans of Logan Paul and KSI right now. And the latest reason I say that is that Prime Energy Drink has now been recalled in Canada over its caffeine levels. With cans of Prime reportedly containing 200 milligrams of caffeine hitting shelves across the country there, which exceeded Health Canada's limit by 20 milligrams. So we had a spokesperson telling CBC News this week that as a result, it should not be sold in Canada. And Canada's Food Inspection Agency adding that it is being recalled following a health risk assessment. Though notably, on the other end, you had Prime releasing a statement to the press saying that its energy drink contains a comparable amount of caffeine to other top-selling energy drinks, all falling within the legal limit of the countries it's sold in, and adding that the packaging specifically says it's not for anyone under the age of 18. But then you had the biggest update coming from Logan Paul himself this morning when he posted a TikTok saying that Prime Energy isn't even offered in Canada. We don't even distribute Prime Energy in Canada. So how could it be recalled? Well, the answer is illegal or unauthorized imports of the beverage. But of course, traditional media doesn't care about that because they just want a headline. They want clicks. The level of misinformation currently being spread around Prime is actually insane. Right, you did have some reports noting that the 200 milligram cans are for the US and saying that there are 140 milligram cans for Canada. But per the BBC, those cans are actually not yet available. With that report appearing to echo Logan's claims that Prime Energy hasn't even launched in the country yet. And now many other reports also saying that the product likely made its way via unauthorized imports or 
forth manufacturers who are unaware of the rules. Because of that, and even though products are supposed to be regulated at the border, some things just get missed. And notably, while Prime Energy is in the news because you have big names attached to it, it wasn't the only product recalled. With that including other beverages, including energy drinks, which were also taken off the shelves alongside it. But also, it's important to note the timing here because this is coming just a few days after Chuck Schumer asked the FDA here in America to investigate the drink, claiming that it's engaged in a vast advertising campaign aimed at kids. And even though Prime Energy has that warning against consumers under 18 drinking it, Schumer argued that Prime Energy is marketed in near identical form as Prime Hydration, which is their caffeine-free sports drink. And then, internet and writing icon John Green just helped end a move by Johnson & Johnson that would have led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Or because on Tuesday, John Green posted a video titled Barely Contained Rage, an open letter to Johnson & Johnson. Which, side note, I've had the pleasure of watching, meeting, getting to know John Green, though we haven't talked in a while, and do you know how egregious your actions have to be to make this man angry enough to say some shit on the internet about how you suck? It's a lot, unless it's about football, in which case it could be very minimal and he'll talk. But in this video, he discussed tuberculosis and the troubling number of people that still die every year to this usually curable disease. Or we're actually talking about millions of people every year. But in the early 2000s, after decades of very little development in TB drugs, Johnson & Johnson developed Bedaquiline. Now, as John tells it, the majority of the money for the development of Bedaquiline came from government funding, but Johnson & Johnson did also invest some money, allowing them to file for a patent for the drug in 2003, which meant they've had the monopoly on this life-saving drug for two decades at this point. Though notably, that patent is set to expire next week, which is really huge news because that would allow generic pharmaceutical manufacturers to develop the drug, making it cheaper and more accessible. But the thing is, Johnson & Johnson filed a secondary patent in 2007, and in many places, they were using that patent to extend their exclusivity until 2027, with John saying, During those four years, experts estimate that up to six million people who would have access to bedaquiline in a world of generics won't be able to afford it, and most of those people will die. Now, it's important to note here that in some places, courts have rejected the secondary patent, saying that it doesn't have adequate innovation. But in the countries that don't have the power to do that, the exclusive rights remain, and many of those places are ones with the highest TB burden. As we saw John rally his fan base, calling them to speak out against this move by Johnson & Johnson and saying, Tell your friends about this injustice, tell your family, tell the internet, because the only reason Johnson & Johnson executives think they can get away with this is that they think we aren't paying attention in the part of the world where they sell most of their products. Now, Johnson & Johnson, uh, of course, was less than pleased with this, releasing a statement on Twitter yesterday saying the usual, it's not true, here's all the good we're doing, etc., etc. That prompting John and so many other people to respond angry and disappointed with the company and leading to a very terrible day for Johnson & Johnson's PR team. But the big news is that something seems to have gotten through to them. Because this morning, you had the organization Stop TB share a statement with some good news, saying that Johnson & Johnson has agreed to allow Stop TB's partner, Global Drug Facility, to supply generic versions of the drug in middle- and low-income countries where the patents remain in effect, which I do not want to undersell. This is such a cause for celebration. I mean, hundreds of thousands of lives are going to be saved because of this decision. Which, side note, the celebratory memes have been absolutely fantastic. But, important to know, this is not the end of the line. But there are still steps to be taken, with John also saying in a tweet this morning addressing Johnson & Johnson, We're starting to have feelings for you since you announced the deal to make generic bedaquiline available through the Stop TB partnership. But we can't fully close this thrilling enemies-to-lovers romance until you commit to deal with GDF in perpetuity, provide the list of countries that can access bedaquiline through this deal, publicly acknowledge this amounts to a functional abandonment of secondary patents on bedaquiline in countries with high TB burden. Say that in a tweet or press release, and it's on. Also, with all this, while the online pressure stirred up by John almost certainly helped, he was also quick to place the credit elsewhere. Saying in a tweet, I want to be clear that while I think our pressure may have affected the timing, this must have been in the works for a while. The real heroes here aren't us, but the Stop TB partnership and other activists who've been working for years to get to this moment. You rule. Thank you. So for now, it seems like we actually have a happy ending, though, of course, we're going to have to keep an eye out for Johnson & Johnson's next press.
press release, which will hopefully include their commitment to let their patents on bedaquiline die for good. And then, did you know that two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time that they're 35? Or maybe you have that friend or that family member that's dealing with hair loss, and well, thanks to the sponsor today's show, Keeps, you don't have to just sit around and wait for that to happen to you. Because whether you're looking to prevent hair loss, stimulate hair growth, or just take better care of the hair that you have, Keeps has you covered. Keeps helps you stop hair loss before it's too late with a scientific and affordable approach to treatments that are up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss. And in addition to clinically proven treatments, Keeps has an award-winning all-natural thickening shampoo and conditioner system. And you can get these products delivered directly to your door, meaning no more going in person to the doctor's office for your prescription, saving you both valuable time and money. Hair loss stops with Keeps. So to get your special offer, just go to keeps.com slash DeFranco, or just click that link in the description. That's keeps.com slash DeFranco. And then Hollywood writers are about to have a lot of company on those picket lines. That's because the negotiating committee for the Screen Actors Guild just unanimously voted to recommend a strike to the union's national board, saying in a statement that after more than four weeks of bargaining, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the entity that represents major studios and streamers, remains unwilling to offer a fair deal on the key issues that are essential to SAG after members. But the Guild's president, Fran Drescher, saying that SAG negotiated in good faith and was eager to reach a deal, but the AMPTP's response to the union's most important proposals have been insulting and disrespectful of our massive contributions to this industry. The companies have refused to meaningfully engage on some topics and on others completely stonewalled us. We have no choice but to move forward in unity. Y'all, this is incredibly significant, if not historic, because SAG hasn't gone on strike against film and TV studios since 1980, and the last time both writers and actors were on strike together was in 1960. So a dual strike would be absolutely monumental. And actually, as I was finishing up today's show, it became official. SAG leadership did a press conference saying that they have voted to move forward with a strike. It'll officially start at midnight, and Fran Drescher getting absolutely fired up during the conference, calling studios out and saying, I cannot believe it, quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. Now for their part, the AMPTP has thrown back blame at the actors saying that rather than continuing to negotiate, SAG-AFTRA has put us on a course that will deepen the financial hardship for thousands who depend on the industry for their livelihoods. Which just to insert my opinion in here is such two-faced bullshit to act like the people who make your industry work, wanting a bigger and fairer piece of the pie, that that's what's causing the financial hardship here. In, by the way, the same fucking week, Deadline reported that a studio executive told them the end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. Or with that quote being in reference to the Writers Guild. The audacity of these scumbags. Right, and like we've talked about in the past, Hollywood workers are fed up and it's become increasingly difficult to just make a living and they want to fight back. Also, you might be wondering, you know, if the writer's strike has already pretty much shut down most production, what's an actor strike gonna do? And well, essentially, it would just take the few remaining projects and make those totally shutter as well. With, for example, the rap, noting the things like Tom Tom Cruise's eighth Mission Impossible movie, which was still pressing forward, would then have to shut down. And then, on top of that, an actor strike would likely bar actors from promoting shows and movies with studios. Hell, it could even stop them from participating in awards campaigns in the upcoming Emmys, meaning no premieres, no press junkets, no San Diego Comic-Con appearances. The Hollywood Reporter noting that major film festivals could be impacted, but events like Venice and Toronto that rely on massive star power to promote the films to make sure that there are actually eyeballs on them. Things like Zendaya's Challengers, which is set to premiere at Venice, right? That would usually take over the internet with some glitzy red carpet, with the strikes likely gonna bar that. And one PR executive telling the outlet, if there aren't any stars, will the reporters come to cover the festival? And if they don't come, what will that mean for coverage of
of your film both now and ahead of release. A lot of films won't get the attention or the publicity they were hoping for. And so all of this would add stress and pressure on the studios. But ultimately, who knows what's going to happen next? Because again, you know, you do have studio execs smugly saying, well, wait till the writers lose their fucking homes. And this in the same week where Disney CEO Bob Iger, who reportedly gets like $27 million a year, said the expectation level that the writers have, it's just not realistic. But for now, that's where we are. And we're going to have to wait to see how this game of chicken plays out. And then is the new Margot Robbie Barbie movie pro-China? That's a very real question that's popped up over the past few weeks and people have been debating, especially as the movie's now been banned in some countries and it sparked a debate about China's influence in Hollywood because of this map. Because if you look off the coast of Asia, there's a dash line going into the sea. And that line was enough for the country of Vietnam to ban the movie, claiming that it legitimizes China's notorious claim to the South China Sea, which if you've watched the show for a while, we've covered that dispute many times over the years. But the oversimplified TLDR is that a ton of countries have overlapping claims to the sea. China's is by far the biggest and most vague, relying on an old map that has nine dashes to mark its claim, which is essentially the entire sea. Now with this, Warner Bros. has denied the claim, saying that map in Barbie Land is a childlike crayon drawing, saying the doodles depict Barbie's make-believe journey from Barbie Land to the real world. It was not intended to make any type of statement. But that didn't stop the Filipino government from also reviewing the movie over fears that it legitimized China's claim over theirs in the sea. Although, they did end up agreeing with Warner Bros. that it was just a silly cartoon map and are allowing the movie to be shown there. However, even the possibility that this was some veiled reference to China's territorial claims has sparked more conversations about how much Hollywood caters to China and its $4.6 billion film industry. Because reportedly, in the past, we've seen a lot of naked pandering. With people pointing out things like adding a panda to Zootopia's Chinese release or setting films in Hong Kong, and possibly the biggest example being casting actors that are massively famous in China into tiny or cameo roles when possible and then using them to market the film in China. As well as over the years, making changes to not anger the communist government over sensitive topics. Or things like Doctor Strange changing the race of the Ancient One from Tibetan to Caucasian, or Bohemian Rhapsody removing all references of Freddie Mercury's sexuality. Or more recently, Top Gun removing a Taiwanese patch from a character's jacket, only for fans to be outraged and the patch put back on. And this on top of Tencent pulling out of the project, leading to Top Gun not showing in China. With all of this kind of showcasing how there was such a massive blow up over something that was seemingly so small, right? A cartoon map in a Barbie movie. And then, you know when you were a little kid, like you had the five second rule, you drop some food on the ground. Oh, I picked it up in five seconds, it's still okay. Well, apparently in Italy, there were like fantastic rule. Let's also make it apply to assault, but because it's assault, let's double it. 10 seconds. And I say that because last year, a 17 year old girl at a high school in Rome was walking up the stairs to class when a 66 year old janitor pulled down her pants and groped her from behind. With him reportedly saying, love, you know, I was joking after she turned around. Now, of course, she does not find this funny. That is not a joke. And she reports him to the police. So we had the public prosecutor seeking a three and a half year prison sentence for sexual assault. But this week, the judge acquitted him. With the judge saying what he did does not constitute a crime because it did not last more than 10 seconds. Which, yes, let's all collectively say it. What the fuck? 10 seconds sounds like nothing, but it's an eternity when it is a crime being committed. And the list of criminal violations of personal boundaries you could commit in that time begins way below groping and climbs way above it. Which is why, naturally, when that ruling broke, you had Italians pissed off. With the likes of White Lotus actor Paolo Camilli kicking off a trend on TikTok and Instagram under the hashtags brief groping and 10 seconds. Where you've got thousands of people now posting videos where they stare into the camera and grope themselves for 10 seconds to show just how long that actually is. And arguing, and not really even arguing, pointing out that assault is assault no matter how long it lasts. And honestly, any judge this stupid or psychotic to pass a ruling like this needs to be looked into. Because you really have to question what is the basis for that reasoning. Sounds like the actions of someone with some skeletons in the closet. And then, the FDA just approved the first ever over-the-counter birth control pill, which is absolutely massive news because it'll drastically expand access to birth control. Because Americans have never been able to get birth control 
control without prescriptions before. This despite the fact that it's been in the U.S. for six whole-ass decades around a hundred other countries already offer it over the counter. Now, with this news, experts say that this will significantly increase access to the 19 million women who live in rural areas that don't have health centers or places that offer a full array of contraceptives. And this being especially helpful for teenagers and people who have a hard time overcoming the financial and logistical barriers to getting a birth control prescription from a doctor. And importantly, the pill will also be the most effective contraceptive people can buy without a prescription. Right, it's more effective at preventing pregnancy than condoms, spermicides, and other non-prescription options. And this is more important than ever because so many abortion protections are being rolled back now. And we see that the groups that currently struggle to access birth control are often the same ones that are most impacted by abortion bans. Now, as far as the specific product the FDA approved, it's called O-Pill, and it's manufactured by the Dublin-based consumer health giant Perigo, with Perigo saying it expects O-Pill to be available to Americans in early 2024, but very notably here, they have not announced how much it will cost. Right? Under Obamacare, most group health and insurance plans are required to cover prescription birth control at no cost. And while about a dozen states do require insurers to cover over-the-counter contraceptives, it is not mandated under federal law. Now, that said, the federal government could move to require insurers to cover non-prescription birth control under an executive order Biden recently signed, and Democrats in the Senate have also introduced legislation that would effectively do the same. But in a statement, Perigo's global vice president for women's health said the company is committed to making O-Pill accessible and affordable to women and people of all ages, and adding that it'll have a program to provide the pill at no cost to certain qualifying people. So yes, very, very big stuff. Obviously, we need to see some more details, but it'll be very interesting to see how it affects the people that it's meant to help, as well as how the approval of O-Pill changes the landscape, and if it causes a spillover effect where we see the FDA approving more over-the-counter birth control options. And then, I hate getting spam messages in my inbox. Very few things annoy me more than getting emails from things I've never heard of. And that's why I want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, Incognite. Y'all, thousands of data brokers collect, aggregate, and sell your personal information every day, from simple data like your name and phone number to highly confidential stuff like your social security number. And brokers get this data from tons of sources. So if, like me, you've ever signed up for a store's reward program, you've gotten spammed afterwards, it was likely a data broker. And even worse, big data breaches have gotten us all. So it's nearly impossible for any of us to keep our data safe by ourselves. Unless, of course, you let Incogni have your back. They deal directly with data brokers to take your personal data back so you don't have to. And Incogni is super transparent about their process. I can see my data requests in real time so I can follow the work they're doing on my behalf. So why wait? Go to Incogni.com slash DeFranco and use code DeFranco to get an exclusive offer of 60% off their annual plan. Go get this amazing deal and don't let your personal data get stolen. That's Incogni.com slash DeFranco. Use code DeFranco or click the link down below to get your personal data off the market. And then we've got to talk about double agents. Right, but when you're thinking about double agents, you're probably thinking about some elaborate spy film, not lobbyists in your state's government. But that's exactly what's happening here. Throughout the U.S., we're seeing the same state-level lobbyists being employed by companies and groups both within the fossil fuel industry and those dedicated to fighting the climate crisis. Right, each state has their own definition of what lobbying and a lobbyist actually is and the rules and laws that come along with it. But the generalized definition of lobbying is an attempt to influence government action through written or oral arguments. That is not a hard and fast rule, though, and there are some exceptions, and then there are exceptions to the exceptions. And then not everyone that lobbies is a lobbyist. Typically, only those lobbying on someone else's behalf for compensation gets that title. And then, in some states, there's even a threshold to meet first. But a key thing here is that political lobbying has been growing substantially since the 1970s, and leading that growth has been the fossil fuel industry. With a recent study finding that not only does the fossil fuel industry lobby more often, they also spend more money doing it. With a study specifically highlighting between 2009 and 2018, when fossil fuel firms spent more on lobbying in light of the push for more climate-friendly practices. However, it was recently revealed that more than 1,500 lobbyists working for the companies within the fossil fuel industry are also being employed by groups, governments, and companies fighting against the climate crisis. And a new project called F- recently unveiling their database of these state-level lobbyists who are working both sides. With this database being developed to shed light on just how deeply entrenched the fossil fuel industry is in state governments. With Timmins Roberts, an environmental sociologist at Brown University, saying, This database really makes it apparent that when you hire these insider lobbyists, you are basically working with double agents. They are guns for hire. The information you share with them is probably going to the opposition. And I mean, we're talking universities, massive tech companies, and even environmental groups, all of which have publicly shared their dedication to action on climate change 
change and also employ lobbyists that also work for massive fossil fuel corporations. For example, the Environmental Defense Fund shares lobbyists with three major gas producers, including ExxonMobil and Duke Energy. A lobbyist outfit used by Syracuse University, who has made promises of carbon neutrality in the next 20 years. They also have contracts with 14 different fossil fuel clients, including Coke Industries companies. And Coke reportedly has a history of climate change denial, and they have active efforts to block any moves towards cutting emissions. I mean, even the city of Baltimore, which is suing big oil companies for their role in climate-related damages, has shared a lobbyist with ExxonMobil. That's one of the defendants in their case. Now, almost every state has laws requiring lobbyists to submit disclosure reports, and it's very rare for a lobbyist to advocate for both sides of a piece of legislation. But beyond that, there are no rules preventing lobbyists from representing two separate organizations that are diametrically opposed. And there are very few regulations preventing sensitive information being shared between sides. And then there's also the paycheck problem, with Sarah Briner, director of research at Open Secrets, saying, the money thing matters too. These environmental groups and even cities can't pay lobbyists as much as huge multinational fossil fuel companies can. So there's an imbalance there. Loyalties would be split. And with all this, you have companies and groups with green initiatives arguing that working with these lobbyists doesn't conflict with their climate goals, arguing that it can even be beneficial, with a spokesperson from the Environmental Defense Fund saying that lobbyists working with big oil is, quote, not in itself an automatic disqualification, and saying in some cases it can actually help us find productive alignment in unexpected places. And while other groups say that these connections allow them to access Republican lawmakers who otherwise wouldn't give them the time of day, with Dennis Dyson, Director of Communications for the National Resources Defense Council Action Fund, saying, at times we retain vendors that specialize in engagement that can help build support for climate and equity progress across both sides of the aisle. However, you have many saying these relationships are actually detrimental to the success of the climate movement. With James Browning, a former lobbyist who worked on the F-minus database, saying, the worst thing about hiring these lobbyists is that it legitimizes the fossil fuel industry. They can cloak their radical agenda in respectability when their lobbyists also have clients in the arts or city government or with conservation groups. It normalizes something that is very dangerous. And adding, we got into this mess on climate by groups seeking short-term wins, but empowering the fossil fuel industry and giving them credibility. And so with all this, the release of the F-minus database has spurred activists and advocates into action, calling on these companies and groups to fire the lobbyists that also represent big oil. With Megan Sally Wells, a former mayor in California who led a movement to ban oil drilling near homes and schools, saying, I hope that many people just don't know they share lobbyists with fossil fuel companies and that this database will bring transparency and allow leaders to better vet these companies. You shouldn't be funding the person who's poisoning you. And Browning adding, people just assume there's no alternative to the status quo, but it takes time to take a sign. It's all about who is in the room when decisions are made, and the only way to force change is to get these fossil fuel companies and their lobbyists out of the room. And we'll wait to see what comes from all of this. I gotta ask you, what are your thoughts? Please let me know in those comments down below. And then, you've got big news coming out of the UK today. And that's because after months of strikes by healthcare and public sector workers, the British government has finally caved to paying them more. With an announcement being made just this morning as tens of thousands of junior doctors were getting ready to start a five-day walkout. So with this deal, they would see police getting a 7% raise, teachers getting 6.5%, junior doctors scoring 6% alongside a lump sum of 1,250 pounds. And on top of that, hospital consultants, which are set to strike next week, are also getting 6%. With this, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says that the pay raises won't involve borrowing more money, which could possibly worsen inflation. Instead, it's going to be funded either by raising revenue through various schemes, such as charging more for visas, or it'll be handled by the budgets agencies that the NHS already has, leading to worries that there will be big spending cuts. And with this whole situation, it's important to remember it took over a year for the government to finally cave to these demands, and it only did so in the face of new strikes and because of the recommendations of independent pay review groups. However, with this, Sunak warned, Today's offer is final. There will be no more talks on pay. We will not negotiate again on this year's settlements, and no amount of strikes will change our decision. Now that we've honoured the independent pay recommendations, I implore you, do the right thing 
and know when to say yes. Now, because the offer was just announced as I'm filming this, it's unclear how each union feels about it, though early indications point to split feelings. So Sunak claimed that the leaders of the teaching unions backed the deal and will urge members to support it, and the union that represents civil servants saying that the offer is both fair and reasonable. But on the other side, the junior doctors have rejected the deal and are going forward with their five-day strike. Right? For them, the 6% raise alongside the lump sum still isn't enough to get them in line with their demands, with those essentially to just be paid the rate they got in 2008 once you account for inflation. And so for now, we're gonna have to wait to see what the reactions are and what the fallout is. And of course, part of that being if Sunak is serious that there will be no other deal. Because then, you know, in the UK, it could get pretty ugly for the rest of the year. And that is where today's extra large daily dive into the news is going to end. But for more news you need to know, I got you covered right here on those links down below. And if you already happen to have watched everything, do not worry, because my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces, and I'll see you Sunday.